Hi, guys. How are you? Hey, awesome. How are you? I can hear you fine. Sweet. I can hear you. Can you hear everything, Chris? Oh, yes. I can, can hear him fine, fine, too. Yeah. So you've got dulcet tones now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That sounds good. Okay, I want so those dulcet tunes. Absolutely, you do. So um, I guess we ought to explain to our guest um, how irreverent and, and um, silly we are. But um, no, we're quite serious, really. I'm Chris, tell, yeah. and I'm a transplanted Brit, and Anne is a Nebraska lady, and Anne knows an awful lot about plants, not too much about living shells, but she's about to get an upgrade on that. And <laughs> uh, The only thing I know about shells and things like that is that my wife, who oddly enough is an MRI tech, had a, a rather odd accident at work one day, and we were in the uh, Caribbean sailing, and I had to keep her off the coral so that she didn't cut herself, but because we got stranded on the coral rocks, because she's a scuba diver like you. Ah, okay, cool. So, but she doesn't. She doesn't take a camera down and take pictures. She just, um, you know, flutters around, and paddles her feet and things, and looks at all these beautiful uh, fish and things. Yeah, that's so, what divers um, do. We sort of just paddle our feet around. Yeah, I know. I, I prefer to sail. It's so much more fun. I can <laughs> Well, I'll look at the pictures, and I'll ride on the boat that sails. I'll be uh, rail meat. How's that? You, yeah, you're definitely going to be rail meat. And we're, what I should explain, Dr. Rawlins, is that um, we race. We're a little bit competitive, and um, so we have a race. Yeah, no, 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 no. You're a little bit competitive, and Cindy, not I am, me. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And, and so we race, and we, we, we race to win. So the crew either walks the plank at the end or is rail meat during the race. <laughs> that works. Oh, it does. Trust me, it does. <laughs> so now it's you're the guest, and we'd really love to hear a little bit about you. I I've, I read that um, you studied neurology at Duke, um, which I, I know is a fantastic university, and then you moved on to law. And in between all of that, you've had time to go scuba diving and take all these fantastic pictures of these books. So. How did you do that? Well, let's see. I, I did my, like you said, I did my undergraduate at Duke and went to med school at Duke and then did neurosurgery at Duke. And I actually learned to dive while I was, was at Duke. And I dove for, I don't know, a couple of years and decided that with all of the amazing colors and shapes and marine life that I wanted to photograph them. And so I took down a camera and started doing uh, basically abstracts and macro work to begin with. And over the years, I've just developed this niche for living shells. I've always been a shell collector, uh, especially when I was young. And uh, I basically just make time. I made time uh, when I was a neurosurgeon. And then when now that I'm a, quote, neurosurgeon and attorney, I have a little bit more uh, it's a handle on my time. I have a little bit more control, and I try and go diving two or three times a year, at, like big trips. So, wow. Where do you and like to you go? You go all over the world, from what I can see. Uh, I I go all over the world, and I heard you ask me where I like to go. My favorite place is a dive site called Diana's Beach in Papua New Guinea. I love New Guinea. I like the Philippines. I like Indonesia. I actually like California as well. I love diving off California. 
Are you under the water the like for days? Is it that kind of thing where you just can't get enough? You just can't get enough. And I've gotten to the point that I almost, particularly doing shell photography, uh, dive only at night. So I typically start diving right around sunset, an hour after sunset, and I'll finish my three dives or so by about one or two in the morning. How, how deep do you have to go for, for getting pictures like these? Most of these are, are what people would consider fairly shallow. Uh, I've certainly been at, I, I think my deepest dive has been around 180, 190, uh, but that doesn't oh, wow. give you a lot of time to do photography. So most of the dives, and actually most of the shells, you find somewhere between uh, 15, 20 feet, and 80 feet. There's some deep water shells that live a little bit below that, but for the most part, that's where the majority of them are. And what's the temperature like of that? I know um, here it would be pretty chilly. Typically, if it's tropical, it's anywhere from 75 to 85 degrees. Uh, if you off California, it's somewhere generally between 58 and 65 degrees. I've been I've been in colder places, and I've been in warmer places. I was diving, and there were no shells here, but I was diving. Um, in an area where a new volcano had just sprung up. So the water was quite warm. It was, I think it was over 100. Wow. Oh, wow. Was that in New Guinea or Indonesia, or where was that? That was between Tonga and Fiji, hmm. just out in the middle of nowhere. So are any of these poisonous or dangerous? There are several that are extremely dangerous. They're, they're in the cone shell family. There are two especially that I've got photographed there, Conus geographus and Conus striatus. Uh, They're poisons, and and it's actually a slurry of poisons, and I could just go, I could just talk hours about these particular poisons. It's It's a mixture of 50 to 200 what are known as polypeptides, and each one of these particular polypeptides or chemicals attack or uh, activate or interact with some type of muscle or nerve or brain, synapse, gateway, whatever it is. But take, for instance, uh, Conus geographus. It, it has been known to kill humans in about seven minutes if, it, if you get stung by them. Ouch. Yeah, and what happens is it attacks the nervous system it stops the nerves, it paralyzes the respiratory system, and if you don't get on a ventilator within five or six minutes, then you stop breathing and obviously you're dead. But the other interesting thing is that many of the polypeptides in this particular cone shell will interact with certain of the brain neurons, and the person will have hallucinations, will have seizures, will have psychotic breaks, uh, just all sorts of very interesting neurological deficits. The cones themselves are under a great deal of scientific study because many of these polypeptides can be used to treat pain. They're, a couple of them act like narcotics and go to the narcotic receptors, but many of them are just totally different and interact with other receptors and they're very, very important in pain research these days. Wow. Oh, interesting. 
So did you? Is that why you got involved in the first place? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, being a neurosurgeon, did you even realize that what you were photographing? I mean, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Your interest in these as a uh, as a life form, or your interest in them as a scientific study? Probably, I probably the poison poisonous aspect of the cones themselves were what interested me first, just because the cones themselves are not that photogenic. They've got beautiful shells. The animal is interesting, but not necessarily as photographic or photogenic as, say, a cowrie or some other interesting type shell. Uh, some of them are very rare, and many of them have never been photographed alive before in the book. And so the poison aspect of it started me interested in them, and then gradually I got to the point that I enjoyed photographing them. Hmm. How fun. So how did the book come about? Ah, the book came about um, by a suggestion from a couple of friends of mine. I have been, I was collecting these photographs, and, me, and, and I am a member of the Conchologist of America, and a lot of them were used in the Conchologist of American Journal. And so I've compiled, I had compiled a fair number of them, and they were, my friends were like, you know, you've got hundreds of these photographs, and if you look around, there is no good artistic photographic book showing living seashells. So you should put them together and get it published. That's what I did. Wow. So for our listeners who haven't seen the book, Charles, can you describe, you know, what would they be seeing as they're turning the pages of your book? Sure. Um, the book is a large format coffee table book. It, is, it consists primarily of artistically photographed living seashells. And people are thinking, okay, how do you artistically photograph a living shell? Well, it's basically because a lot of people haven't seen the actual animal. They've just seen the shell, the dead shell. The animals themselves are fantastically colored and shaped. So the book is, is primarily artistic photographs, one, essentially one to each page, of these particular living shells. They're broken down into various categories like cowries, cones, uh, some miscellaneous photographs, uh, first photographs. Some, of, Like I said, I have a whole section in there of shells that have never been photographed alive before. And then just some, some interesting, odd-type shells. And they, like I said, it's one photograph to a page. I believe it's about 120 pages or so. There's a little bit of text in there just to describe what each one of the families or groupings consist of. And that's basically it. It's not scientific. I mean, there's some interesting facts, but it's not meant to be scientific. It is meant to be primarily photographic and artistic showing these living shells. Now, you say that you're doing this in the evening at, 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 at dusk and then through the early evening hours when it's dark. So is there a luminosity to these? Living shells? Is there is there some particular kind of lighting that you're providing, or? Ah, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, these shells, they, they do not have luminosity. They are not bioluminescent. They don't have phosphorescence. They don't have any of that. So you do, from a photographic standpoint, I have two large strobes that are attached to the camera, 
or the camera housing, I should say, and are synced with the camera itself. So it's basically like photographing with two two big strobe lights that go off to provide uh, to provide the light. And the what, shells are stationary. They're not floating around in the water like a jellyfish. The shells are not floating around, but they are far from stationary. Some of those shells, particularly the venomous cones, are very fast. You, I, I generally have to compose, focus, and photograph in, in under a second, or these particular shells will be moved. And you just, you just follow them along and try and get them in various poses, you know, from an artistic standpoint, to take, to take the photos of them. So how, how do they react when you take the picture? Because I'm looking at some, I've actually got the book in front of me, and I'm looking, and they're fantastic, by the way. Some of them sort of glow in the dark which means you must have got the right focal length, but they, they also look like they're just about to take off. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are taking off. Believe me, these, these, these animals do not stay still. And they've got certain types of them have better eyes than others, uh, so they are light sensitive. And in fact, a, a full moon is not when you go try and photograph shells because the shells are light sensitive and generally stay stay hidden. So you go on a new moon when it's pitch black down there, and then the shells come out and and are out hunting for food essentially. So they're not so How do you avoid standing on them? I mean, if you stand on them, they're going to hurt, aren't they? They are. So you have to have good diving skills. You have to have good buoyancy. Hmm. Wow. Huh. This is fascinating, you know. It is fascinating because I would be, well, I'm, for one, I'm not a scuba diver. And for two, after what you just told me, that if I got close to a certain kind, I could be dead in seven minutes. I'm not sure I'm going to be venturing into the well, reef very quickly to take these photographs. <laughs> I, I, I remember the jellyfish at home. They're, they're a bit of a pain. But I don't think we've got anything quite like these. They're, they're, they're just incredible. Yeah, they're... Uh, uh, they're mostly tropical. Uh, they're in the waters around England. There are some pretty decent uh, shells, but there there are none that are poisonous or anything like that. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize they were nocturnal. That's that's completely new news to me. Yeah, the the nocturnal ones tend to be carnivorous because they're out hunting. Obviously, uh-huh. giant clams you can find during the day or conchs you can find during the day because they don't bury themselves. And the giant clams are just out, uh, generally in shower, shallow water. But the, the interesting ones, the ones that have big animals, uh, they typically come out at night. Now, you mentioned that a lot of these... Of... Go ahead, Chris, you go first. Sorry. Oh, I, I was going to ask, if, if they, they um, sort of live together in sort of a symbiotic um, arrangement or not, um, not really. You can find colonies of one species sometimes. The inter- one of the interesting, talking about symbiosis, is the giant clam. Uh, the colors in the giant clam, which you can see back towards the back of my book, the sort of the abstracts, are caused by algae that live in the giant clam mantle. And the giant clams typically live in very shallow, very sunlit waters, because the algae produces uh, a, a, diff- a type of food for the, uh, for the giant clam. It's not the sole 
source of nutrients, but it's one of them. Uh, so that's one of the big symbiosis uh, of the and, shells. And they're under threat, aren't they, from what we've been hearing? Uh, many of them are. Um, these days, a lot of the, the uh, Pacific countries have clam farms, uh, basically like Palau and the Philippines have giant, giant clam farms. Um, because a lot of times the smaller ones were collected for the aquarium trade, and so it decimated the, the young population. And so Palau and the Philippines started essentially farming these giant clams, and uh, they sell some to the aquarium trade. Uh, the natives eat them some, so they sell them to eat. But, you know, they've got just acres and acres underwater of these giant clams. I'm ignorant. What do the living shells eat? Is it plankton? Is it algae? I mean, what do they eat? The, well, let's see. We can start with the cones. Uh, the cones are all carnivorous. They either eat other mollusks, other seashells, or they eat worms, or the group that's most poisonous actually catch and eat fish. Uh, and that's, mm. why the, that's why the poisons are so powerful is because once they get that fish, harpooned, they don't want the fish to swim away, so the fish dies in about, probably in about two or three seconds. So the cones are all carnivorous. The conchs, like you would find down in Florida, like the queen conchs, are all, they're all herbivores. They eat algae, they eat eelgrass, that sort of stuff. A group called the volutes are all carnivorous. They feed on pretty much anything they can get hold of. The harps are interesting because they have such a large animal that they will go along the sand and will capture crabs and shrimp that they can dissolve and eat like that. So, I mean, you've got a whole range of, of, of feeding habits all the way from the specialized cones down to the conchs that just eat uh, algae and the giant clams that have the algae in them and then they just are filter feeders just siphoning the water. Hmm. Wow. wow. And I have no here. idea. <laughs> oh, these are amazing. There's one here that looks a bit like a, um, an octopus or a squid. Well, it, it may be, because in the back I, ha I think I have a couple of what are known as cephalopods. They're related to the seashells. They include the nautilus, the squid, octopus, and cuttlefish. Wow. Yeah, you learned your diving skills. What's you that? You learned your diving skills in the in the were you in the military, in the navy or something? Is that where you learned to dive? Uh no, actually I I mean I was um taught I did have some SEAL training, but not formally in the military. So it was a, it was interesting to learn to dive, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. What's your worst uh, worst experience and your, well, your best one must be your photography. What's one of the uh, scariest things you've ever had happen? Well, I mean, once you have some experience, there's not a lot of, quote, scary things that happen. I've probably had almost every piece of my equipment either fail or blow up or flood my mask or something like that. So you, you sort of get used to or you're prepared for an equipment failure. You're, you know how to deal with those. Probably the most, one of the most frustrating things was 
I had traveled to Mauritius to photograph a very specific rare shell. And luckily I was able to find one, and so I was photographing it, and part of my regulator, the, 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 a piece of equipment that supplies you air from the tank, blew out. And so I was losing all my air, and I had just gotten set up for the photographs, and the animal had just come out. So I, yeah. was, I basically had, had to calculate how many seconds I had before I would have no air at all and take as many photographs as I could in that particular, um, particular amount of time. So, oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> so that was that's more of a dedication the than anything. Yeah. That, that's a sign of true passion for what you're doing, I would say. <laughs> Let me put my life at risk here. How many seconds of air do I have left? Well, see, that's just it. It's not, you're not putting your life at, at risk because you know you've got, okay, the, the air is coming out at this particular rate. You can watch it on your computer. You know you're losing this amount of air. And so you've got, I calculated it was like 65 seconds I had before I had lost all the air. So I'm like, okay, if I can take a picture every six seconds or so, I can get 10 good photographs before wow. I have to go up. Do, do you um, buddy dive? No, not at all. And I'm, wow. I shouldn't say that because it goes against every beginning diver's training. But I've, I'm, I'm a photographer and specialized, and I don't want really anyone around me bothering me. So I dive with some redundant systems, and no, I don't dive with anybody. Wow. Well, I, I can see why because of the photography, but um, that that must make it a little bit more interesting on occasions. Yeah, it does absolutely. Hey, Dr. Rowlings, uh, you've mentioned several times that several of the specimens you've been able to catch on film are rare. Uh, why are they rare? Is there something happening happening with their population, or is it that they're just that difficult to catch at the right time? Well, let's see. Some of the ones that that I photographed or first photographs are are actually very rare. The 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 shells themselves, the animals themselves, are very rare, and probably it's because we just haven't found the right habitat for them. And because they just appear every now and then, and you get lucky enough to photograph them. Some of the ones that are just first photographs just ha- aren't, aren't necessarily that rare. Just no one's taken photographs of them. But you ask, mm-hmm. is something happening? The answer is actually, yeah, as the, uh, as the earth warms up, as the ocean waters warm up, and they've been warming up, I think they're about a degree or two over what they were in the 1800s, the shells have problems incorporating calcium carbonate into their actual shell. And so the shells of the animals become thinner and thinner as the water becomes warmer and warmer, and you have uh, much more delicate shells. And so they're more, much more easily preyed upon by stingrays and fish and everything else. And when That's these are being used for medicinal research or purposes, how, I mean, you mentioned like a clam farm. Obviously, we know that's for food production. Is there a way that these life forms can also be farmed for pharmaceutical purposes? Is that being researched? Is that possible? It's possible. It's a little bit difficult. 
I know I know that the cones, they the geographus and the striatus that they use are fairly hardy in captivity, and they do lay eggs. So, but the problem is, uh, usually these animals have what's known as a veliger stage. In other words, they they're not they're in the actual plankton stream, and so you can't really provide that in an aquarium. You can't. Uh, you know, you can't throw them out in the water and and have them in the plankton stream and in the aquarium. So they don't huh. they don't they may breed and lay the eggs, but it's hard to raise them. Huh. So it's hard so to we, farm them then anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Because it's all random. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Have you noticed any uh, other changes with um, uh, any uh, like the plastic um, problems they have with pollution in the in the oceans and plastic bags and, and stuff like that that just doesn't dissolve? Yeah, I've, I've noticed that. I can't say that where I've been diving, it's a huge problem. Many times uh, the natives are just aware from an economic standpoint that their reefs and water are very valuable from a tourist standpoint. So they'll clean up the trash and things like that. But, yeah, definitely um, some of the areas have a plastic pollution problem. But what I've really noticed over the years, and I've been what diving 30-some-odd years, are the coral reefs being damaged by giant anchors from cruise ships or being dredged for concrete or, or any, any number of sort of wow. engineering, mechanical-type equipment. In fact, in the Maldives, one of the, I believe it's the Maldives, one of their air strips is made essentially from a coral reef right off the shore. So, oh, that's just scary. Yeah, absolutely. So I've seen, I've seen a lot of the reef destruction primarily from mechanical means. Wow. I had no so idea. Where are you planning to go next? In April, I am flying to Malaysia to go diving in Malaysia. There are a couple of species of cone shells that are fairly rare there in Volutes, and I want to photograph those. What fun. Um, well, it must, admit, it must be a fascinating hobby. Well, <laughs> passion, actually, isn't it, really? Yeah, I would say I would label it probably a passion. It's pretty cool. I can understand why there aren't other books like yours. <laughs> why? Because there's not anyone crazy enough to do this? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I just think, like, as you said, it's so specialized, and you really have to, it's not for your average Joe photographer who's just going to be swimming in the ocean on a pretty day and take a few pictures. Yeah, you no, really got to purposely that. go out of your way. You have to research where you're going. You have to know in advance what you're doing. You're not going to happen upon these animals necessarily. So um, it's it's fascinating how much you put into it and but it, it reads its it gets its rewards as well absolutely so it, it's it's a really beautiful book well thank and, you um, i appreciate so, that i mean really really beautiful it. hey ha, hey dr rawlings where can anybody who's listening to this program it they could be anywhere in the world so what is the best way if someone listening wanted to get a hold of a copy of your book or wanted to get a hold of you how can that happen um, I probably would tell them to go to one of my websites. The website for the book is www.livingshells.com, 
And you can also go to my website. It's www.charlesrawlings.com. In terms of purchasing the book, they can contact me through the website. Barnes & Nobles has it. Amazon has it. Uh, some of the Shell uh, dealers have copies of it for sale. It, it's pretty much all over. You can find it pretty much anywhere you want to. Okay, wonderful. Give we'll, we'll add that to the web. Yeah, we'll add it to the website. We'll, we'll say them both one more time just for our listeners who might be tuning in. Sure, it's www.livingshells.com or www.charlesrawlings.com. And Rawlings is R-A-W-L-I-N-G-S? Yes, ma'am. Perfect. Well, Dr. Rawlings, I personally just thank you so much for what you've given the world through taking these photographs uh, and just sharing what you've learned and your passion. That's what our show's about, and it's fascinating. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. Yes, thank you very much. You guys are great interviewers. I love the questions. Oh, good. Well, thank you so thank much, you. And, and enjoy, and have a great trip in Malaysia. We look forward to the next, the sequel. Ah, sounds good. Okay, <laughs> Liv- thank you very much, guys. Living Shells Part 2. Well, it's called Living Mollusks, and it's at oh, the mollusks oh, right now. Oh, wonderful. That's a great. <laughs> well, we can certainly add that to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening today. We really appreciate your support and tuning in on Growing Trends. Dr. Rawlings was a fascinating interview, and if you would like to hear this again, make sure to look for us on growingtrends.org for the podcast, or we all are on iTunes. You can look for us as Growing Trends there as well. Look for the blonde and the Brit, and then you'll know that must be them. Thanks for Ann and Chris. Tune in next time. 